know, I used to get so frustrated both doing stand-up on TV and, and watching stand-up on TV. I used to get fr so frustrated because everything that to me was exciting about stand-up had to be cut out in order to be on TV. You know, you have yep. to make your mark, you have cameras and this, this and that. And, and everything you do as a stand-up had to, had to adapt for the production. Mm -hmm. And I said, what if we did it the other way around? Like, what if we decided that the production should adapt to the reality of stand-up that we find exciting? What's Thanks going on, man? Thanks so much for having me on your last ever podcast. I'm so honored. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is the last one. We I, wanted to go I out was, with a bang. That is hilarious. the greatest titled podcast ever. You were, it's, you know, what's really funny is that you broke up and then you were like, "This is the greatest titled <laughs> podcast," and then it ended, and then it, and then you broke up again. And I was like, "What? Finish the sentence." <laughs> yeah, but that would be a perfect way for your last podcast to end, though. So yes. <laughs> kind of thematic i'm working with the uh electronic universe i appreciate that that's how we're gonna plug it um i i really was dude i was up late hbo i'd never seen this movie before i thought it was great it was odd jobs oh my god you wow. paul paul reiser rick overton robert townsend yeah uh um julianne julianne phillips was in that yes right as well as uh eleanor mondale is in yes. it yes what a bizarre cast. That is, the whole thing was, was a bizarre cast. Yeah. The whole movie was obviously it was like, you know, when when they when this whole thing came together and I got cast and you know, I was so excited to be in a movie with Riser and Townsend and Overton yeah. and all these all these great comics, a few other cameos in there I can't remember. Right. But um and the director is this guy who he had done like a ton of commercials that were really funny. Mm. And, uh, and so we were all excited about this and he let us play in front of the camera and, you know, make shit up. And, and we were so excited about this. And, and, and every once in a while they would let us watch some, some, not dailies per se, but what they call rushes, oh, which yeah. are like little assemblies of scenes that he put together. Right. Mm -hmm. And, okay. and, uh, so we'd watch these scenes and we were just, it was so funny when the whole movie got put together. It was like he could only be funny in 60-second bursts, like a commercial. <laughs> and the whole the, the whole thing together was just like it just fell apart. And it just right. wasn't, you know, I mean, it's I'm, it's not my favorite movie in the world. There are, a no, few no, funny, you mean. there are a few funny things in it, but it was so interesting to see, to experience firsthand a sort of, uh, you know, Peter Principle at work, that this guy could do the most hilarious 60-second bites. Yep. And then what he went on it? to create TikTok. Perfect. Uh, well, actually, I think it was his first feature, too. And so I, I don't think his career took off after this. But in 60-second bursts, it was these hillbillies or something like that. And that right. scene was so funny. We were gasping how funny it was. But then when the whole movie was together, it was just like, where, 
why was this so funny and now it's not (laughs) yeah it was it was very much like that it's like those guys now who can only do trailers and the rest of the movie fucking sucks like a a minute trailer is hilarious yeah. That's kind of that's kind of what this situation was, but we did we had a blast making it. It was so fun just being on a set with so many comics where yeah, where it was so, you know playful and loose. Well, that's that's the thing I noticed the most, man, is that it was clear that everybody knew each other, and you guys had that kind of relationship, and we're kind of fucking around, and um, it had like a very coming of age diner feel to it, almost. You know, you know that that's what it was. Was originally the concept was for it to be like it, it was later than this, but it was kind of written as one of those '80s teen movies. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like one of those like you know weird sort of like you know raunchy kind of team was like a porky's kind of thing right yeah yeah but um there was real discord between the producers and the director and everything they just decided they didn't want it to be that kind of a raunchy movie but it wasn't anything else (laughs) so they just they ended up taking out the stuff that was the reason that somebody paid to make this movie in the first place which was to make one of those kind of movies right so it, it was trippy but um it was it was weird, but I can't yeah, believe yeah. you saw it. I, I'm actually shocked. I didn't even know it was actually anywhere to be had. They changed the title a couple of times, and oh, it uh, did. It was yeah, it was yeah. the weirdest thing, man. Because I was I knew obviously you were coming on this week, and I'm just fucking awake at like three o'clock in the morning, and I'm flipping through the channels, and I see a movie called Odd Jobs, and then it said on the very bottom of the thing like Paul Provenza, and I was like, what the fuck? So then I like the- looked it up, man, and it was all of you in it. And I caught it right in the beginning, too. So I got the whole thing. But I watched it. And it was like, this is like a cool piece of uh, comedy. It is a little, it's a little time capsule thing there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, anything before cell phones is just kind of cool at this point. You know what the funny thing is? Is I think it's hilarious that we'll watch movies now and be like, oh, I, you know, what do people do when they're broken down on the side of the road back then? You couldn't call anybody. I hate to break it to people, but no one I know is up at 1 o'clock in the morning anymore. For me to call yeah, anyway I, like everybody has their phone on fucking silent or do not disturb so it's the yeah. same shit and you had to go and find a, a highway phone right, which right it was like you know in the best of times they were like a mile apart so that you know the closest you could possibly <laughs> be is half a mile and right. then you were lucky if it worked and you could get yeah. through to triple a you know yeah yeah. yeah yeah you know i love those movies where it's like they break down and it's a guy and a girl and the guy's like, I'll walk just to be safe. And I'm like, you know, she's also not safe. Just hanging back. Right. Just hanging back in a dark. Cell phones have ruined so many scripts. Like there's so many, it's so funny. I love watching movies where you just know that if, if, if they had cell phones, the movie would have been over in 10 minutes. A couple text you know? messages would have so, saved so you. Got, you got to watch them figuring out how to not have a phone available, you know? Right. I yeah. saw one movie where you, you can see that after the fact, they just kind of shot a scene of a guy feeding his fish in a fish tank and the phone falls out of his pocket into the fish tank to explain why he doesn't have a cell phone yeah. later on. Or you see them like struggling, going through hoops to try and say, how can we justify not having phones? Because yeah. otherwise this is not a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our hero walks too close to a magnet and the phone just fizzles <laughs> or whatever. And you're like, I guess he does. You, you know what move I love in a movie when I know shit's going to go down is when people do this. And then they're like, oh, oh, okay. That's the I can't find a signal pose. Right. And, right, and they're all the going to get murdered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're in the middle of like, you know, downtown Chicago. There's no signal. <laughs> I know. 
out. Yeah. What could be going on? A giant monster is attacking the city and all our cell phones are down. I think we need a moratorium on stuff. There's just too much stuff. There's too much yeah, stuff. There's yep, so much stuff out there. I, I, I can't even. I drive up off La Brea where they have all these, you know, billboards for, you know, all these TV series and stuff. And I'll be driving up and it'd be like, you know, uh, you know, debuting ninth season of like I never fucking heard of half of these things, and they're already in like the ninth season. It's just yeah. too much stuff. <laughs> yeah, or like and or I'm like not in any of it, and you're not. Yeah, yeah. Or like when when a show is ending and everyone's really sad about it. And I'm like, I didn't even know it existed. How could this many people be sad? Is it all a scam? I, I, Are you I all don't. paid actors? I, I swear to God, I just don't understand any of it anymore. No, I don't either. Are you are you death scrolling at right now with like Ukraine like because that's the thing my friends and I are talking about where it's like everything that's happening in Ukraine is obviously fucking tragic it's horrible but you're going through your phone and it's like breakup uh, advertisement uh, food picture and death 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 <laughs> you know and then like and it's just it's just a weird mix right now like and that's how we're getting our information it's bizarre it is it's so funny too because sometimes because you know my scroll is essentially random I suppose. Yeah, but uh, yeah. as you go through it, it's like you're reading all of that stuff, and then all of a sudden, there's news about Kanye. Like, like, yeah, yeah, just, just just illustrates how bizarre and stupid all of that is, you yeah. know, when it's in the context of the real universe, which is so psychotic. This is surreal. We're in a sci-fi movie. I'm convinced of it. <laughs> Have you heard the theory about 2012? About how in 2012, if you if you kind of map the trajectory. Like that's when everything started really getting bizarre, like fucking Mandela effect shit, like into like people, people remembering different points of time and, and all that other shit. And they say at 2012, when they found the God particle, because that's when they found it, uh-huh. that's when shit went really haywire. Like yeah, when they really started colliding that. atoms. Yeah. I, I think it was a little before that. I, I think, uh, I think it was the smartphone that, that uh, really sort of put us over the edge, you know, just it's too, it's too much to have with you at all times and to be yeah. able to interact with everybody and everything at any given moment. And yeah, it's just too much. I think before that was perfect. Texting, yeah, little images here and there. It was great. Even situationally, like, I think it's so funny. Like, you know, I always think about like why sitcoms kind of suck now. And it's because there's no situation. It's a situational comedy. There's no situations for people left to be in because this gets us out of every situation. See, you know, another good point. that's it i'm out uh (laughs) but like yeah isn't it true that like it's like one of those things where like if you if you have an entire generation that grows up where they're they don't have to go out and they can just sit at home and they just text each other i I think we were talking about this where somebody's in the same room a group of people in the same room it's really quiet but everybody's talking to each other because no one's actually saying things out loud but everybody's texting yeah you never with the person you want to be with Right, exactly. Right. Isn't that the fucking truth? Yeah. And I don't know. I, I, you know I, I hate being that guy. You know, sounding like that old guy or sort of luddite or all that sort of stuff. But but uh, I just don't think the species can handle this much information at one time. No, yeah. definitely not. Otherwise, you wind up looking like uh, fucking Einstein twenty four seven with the hair out and all that other shit. That's yeah, intense. That's the best of circumstances. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's the problem. We have too many Einsteins. That's the problem. <laughs> but look at where it's going too. It's gonna now we're gonna go into like whole virtual realms, like where people are just going to live in the metaverse. That's crazy, yeah. crazy to I me. Know. I know it's very. It's all. It's kind of almost a. It's it's almost like we're creating 
you know, the idea of multiverses and, you know, string theory and multiple universes. And yeah. Kind, yeah. Of, kind of like we're creating that in our own universe. And that seems, I don't know. I don't know. It's disconcerting. That's all I can say is it's really hard to get your head around stuff. It's hard to get your head around the technology that you can't even comprehend. I mean, we don't really even understand what's going on with uh, with cell phones. You know, I mean, that's all quantum mechanics and shit going on there. We don't even understand it. Yeah. It, 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 I don't know. I feel like we could have. I don't know. Did we have a handle on fire when that showed up? I think we may not have understood, you know, the the science behind combustion, but we could get our heads around fire. Oh God! You think there was one one like teenage troglodyte, and his parents were just like, "You were spending way too much time in front of the fire." We are. You know, when I was your age, we had a we had to make our own H two O. You had a hydrogen, and you had I. We had to. <laughs> oh, you just take everything for granted. You think we had to wait for lightning to strike a bush? Yeah, you kids today, you kids. And, your, and your rocks with and your science. <laughs> I love that meme that they've got that goes around where they're like, uh, you know, nobody nobody talks to anybody anymore because everyone's focused on their cell phone. And there's a picture from like the 30s of a train, and Remember, everybody's reading the, the newspapers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. great one. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the truth too. But I don't know. You're always I, kind of antisocial. I don't know. All I, all, all I know is I have never felt. I and most of my peers, uh, and even like a generation or even two younger than I, mm-hmm. I have never experienced such sort of uh, existential, yeah, uh, you know, mystery in the in the day to day. I mean, you throw pandemic into the mix, and, and right. I, I I feel like time has slowed down or stopped, but at the same time, when I leave my house, it's like, you know, there's series that have been on the air for ten years that I didn't even know about. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I just I just am so discombobulated. Yeah, you know, you know what the other thing is that marketing has gotten so good at whether or not that series was on for ten years, it could have been popular, it could have been not popular. They've gotten so good at making it look like you should have known about this, but you forgot. Oh man, like, so maybe I'm falling prey to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what's crazy? Do you remember? I don't know if you were a fan of How I Met Your Mother when that show was on the air. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not. I, yeah, I'm not really. I don't. I was. I was hesitant to say like anybody's going to give a shit. It's not. It wasn't really my cup of tea, right? And I'll tell you why though, because they were br- the writers were brilliant at this though. They made a show and they tapped into people's people's nostalgia without even earning it. Like from from episode one, they were doing flashbacks. Oh, right, right. Oh, that's really interesting. Oh, and you're right. Had, yeah. jokes and it, and it made you it, you either you either went along with it and you were like oh this is great i know these people or you were like me who was going i don't know what the fuck they're talking about uh, like <laughs> nostalgia and nostalgia for characters that don't even have a history yet yes that was just created out of thin that's really funny yeah. and they and they kind of but now i feel like everybody's kind of doing that a little bit which is which is you know i don't know it could be advantageous i guess if you know how to manipulate it I usually don't. Do you when you're out when you're doing stand up though? Do you feel inhibited by like? Do you think about people and their cell phones when you're doing new shit? You know what? I got to tell you, I haven't been performing for a while. Uh, I, I decided to not perform for a few years. It's been about three or four years now. Wow, I mean, a little bit here or there, but, mm. but for the most part, I'm I'm, I'm largely that's because uh, you know I never got my own audience, right? Okay. I mean, even at my peak, 
at, mm-hmm. at the time when you know the most people were coming to see me that ever came to see me mm-hmm. um you know it was maybe 50 60 percent of the audience max you know okay. and the rest were people that were just going out to see comedy you know right and um so I never had, you know, an audience where I could book myself into a theater or something like that, and I could fill it with people who knew who I was. Right. Uh, and um, as a result of that, you know, when you get you get up in a club now, even the you know showcase clubs here in L.A., I'm the oldest person within a hundred miles, and uh, uh, it's like a blind date every night. You know, yeah. it's like I'm at a point in my life where I don't want to have to explain to you who I am and what I'm about. Right. At this point in my you know evolution yeah uh, yeah uh, and and people my age don't go out that much anymore like you know even you know from the fans that i have from way back that are still actually you know really interested in what i do they don't go out right so i just found it i just found it exhausting and i found it like you know on, on top of having to deal with well this other stuff the fact that well for a long time before I backed away. Um, I really got a sense that audiences were really different. I mean, one thing that really, really had been in in the air for a long time, and a lot of comics would, would talk about it whenever I, I would bring it up. We'd have really interesting conversations. But for a long time, I've been feeling a sense of entitlement from an audience that I thought was just so inappropriate, not for me in general, but just for art in general. Yeah. It's like, it's like the audience had this thing that I want to see what I want, Mm-hmm. Fuck whatever it is you're giving us, like you know, yeah. that's not that's not what I want. And I don't know if it's just that you know you can get whatever you want at any given moment, you know. So there's this, yeah, there's just this real palpable sense of entitlement that an mm-hmm. audience had, where it sort of like defeats the purpose of being original or doing anything, you know, that's idiosyncratic to you, right? Specific yeah. to you. Even being spontaneous or like live in the moment. You're not wrong though. That's the thing though, too, is it is a hindrance to art because they also think they know exactly what they want, which means they're shutting down from anything new coming in. That's so like, kind of, yeah, I, yeah. And I guess that's kind of, I guess it's another iteration of, you know, the bubble that we get in on social media. You know, right. I guess it's a variation on that. But having said that, this, this sense of an audience's sense of entitlement uh it's been around a lot longer than social media yeah it's growing and growing and and um it's odd i don't quite i wish i were facile enough with the terminology or the or the sociology of it all to really connect the dots but yeah it's yeah. definitely connected i just can't really identify it but something weird has gone on with with audiences in general and again Do you think it's only live that, stuff oh good um well yeah although you know, I never. I, I'd be very happy if I never see a movie in a movie theater again ever because right. other people suck. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I have. To, there is no joy in sharing an experience of watching a movie with, uh, you know, a room full of other people, because right. everybody's like they think they're at home. It seems like you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then yeah. I think that's part of it too. Is that something yeah. weird has happened where the sort of social order of performer live audience you know all of a sudden that's mysterious to audience members like no, right. you, you shut up during your show or you yeah you know, um, yeah absolutely uh, but having said all of that i think there's some of the greatest comedy ever happening you know and i think there are some phenomenal performers out there and i've been to shows that are just you know amazing mm-hmm. um, um so 
it's not universal and it's obviously something that can be overcome. Yeah. Um, I think to a large extent, my, my response to it all is somewhat generational and equally as experiential. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I speak to a lot of young people who have the same, a lot of similar, you know, yeah, I've spoken true. to a lot more and more young, more and more young comedians are like this social media thing is killing me, you know? Yeah, so it is. More than generational. Because, well, the other thing is, too, with the social media, it's not like, you know, your your job as a comedian is is no longer just like write material, show up to gig without dying, you know, and then do well and then keep, you know, keep getting better. It's literally like you are social media marketer. You're you create your own graphics. You create your own memes. You've got to manage four different social media accounts. You've got to edit your own videos and you probably all, you're you know, you're still booking your own shows. So you're doing all this shit. And it's exhausting. And then you don't actually get to focus on the art. Yeah. You have to do like 12 jobs now. Yeah. And people but don't realize again, that. Again, the flip side of that is, um, you know, that I remember coming up and I think of all the things that, you know, I would sit around with Rick Overton or some other, you know, brilliant minds and just say, wouldn't it be funny if, and we would come up with these ideas and sketches and funny little, you know, ideas for video pieces and things like that. Well, yeah. now you can actually do them, you know, you can do them at zero expense, just about, yep. you know. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think, wow, God, the, you know, the amount of stuff that we could have done when I, when you're, you know, a young comic and you're just starting to sort of feel your, you know, feel your strength and your power uh, creatively. And you're with other people who are brilliant. When all that's going on and the ideas are just flowing, you know. So much of them, they just went away and they were just, you know, fun things that we thought about and things that made us laugh and they just went away. But now you can actually do them. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that we weren't able to do that in those times, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and people are doing it all the time now. And a lot of it's just great, you know, yeah, so it it's really... a double-edged sword. There's a lot of great shit that's come with the technology and, and a lot of really awful shit that's come with the yeah. technology. Yeah. yeah sure. Do you, I mean, because I, I know you're so creative. Like, <clears throat> so when we even when we talked on the phone, you just have a very comedic mind. Anybody who knows you, I think, is watching you on Green Room. You're always doing it. Um, are you always writing for the anticipation to get back on stage? Like, do you miss the stand up, even though, you know, like you said, you didn't really get to build your own audience? You know, it's an odd thing. I kind of do and I kind of really depends on when you ask me at this moment. Okay. I'm, at this moment, I'm, I'm, I'm right in the middle. But um, um, there are times when I think of some stuff and I go, holy fuck, this would be, you know, I, I can see spending some time on this and fleshing it out. And it would be a killer piece. Right. But, um, you know, I'm 64 years old and I'm just tired of having to, uh, of starting from square one all the time, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, um, and I'm not, you know, it's, it's A, the nature of the business. It's B, choices that I've made all that sort of stuff. Cause I've always been kind of, um, all over the place, you know, mm. I mean, I was doing, I studied at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts for a little while. I was doing theater. I was writing, I was doing stand up, I was performing in various little things here and there. And then I started playing around with directing and editing and all of that. And, um, um, I, I, I kind of kept myself, I, I I'm sort of guilty of having kind of, um, undermined my own sort of linear career you know mm. um i wouldn't trade it for the world and, uh, and i'm not really complaining about these things i'm just kind of explaining them to yeah you. yeah yeah um, um 
but that's why I, I haven't, you know, been going on stage much. And plus, I took about 15 years, maybe a little bit more, maybe closer to 18 years, where I was outside of the country, outside of America, more than I was in America. I started working on the international circuit. Right. And, uh, and that was really, really exciting. And creatively, it was an unbelievable shot in the arm. I started doing that right, you know, I, I had been traveling overseas and working the international market uh, right around the time. I'd been doing it for a little while, right before I started working on the aristocrats. And the aristocrats, nice. um, uh, you know, I would go away for two, three months, and then I'd be back for, you know, four or five weeks, and then we'd get as much done as we could. And then I'd go away again for another couple of months, come back for two weeks and do what we could. And then, mm -hmm. So it was really right smack in the middle of it. Uh, I developed a green room at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and I brought yeah. a, camera, a cameraman friend of mine uh, who brought up other people with cameras, and and we actually figure out how you know how if we did turn this into a television show, what would be the most interesting way to shoot it? We were actually moving yeah. cameras around and looking at footage and going because I wanted a certain vibe in my head. I sort of had a vision for it and all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the book Satiristas, I was still working overseas and meeting all these people and, and, and talking about the art form to people from around the world all the time. And um, just all kinds of set list. You know, the first thing I did when we started working with the set list format, which was created by the evil genius Troy Conrad. Mm -hmm. um, um, first thing I, I, I did was we booked it into uh, Edinburgh because you get 28 days in a row to do a show with right. the most, you know, uh, discriminating comedy audience. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Um, uh, you know, in that one month, you get uh, like a year's worth of development, creative development done, you know, because you're doing right. it every night. Immediately, you can check the results that, that that next day, you know, of whatever changes you make, whatever. So we nailed down the format. And, and we also knew that the British television landscape was a little more conducive to stand up than the American uh, uh, TV landscape is uh, within. Let's see. Edinburgh was over at the end of August. Mm -hmm. By October, we had a deal to do 14 episodes for Sky Atlantic Television. Wow. So um, it was a really tremendously creative time, but I was also not in American show business, basically. I was off doing shit. And I was, you know, I was doing solo shows in Paris and in, in, in the Middle East, you know, in Qatar and Abu Dhabi. And, wow. And, and, right. You know, we did set list in Austria and, and then we made deals with uh, comedians from Argentina and from Egypt to do it in their languages, you know, oh my God. And, and we would work on the creative end and then they would do the translations. And then we, I mean, it was just it was really cool. Yeah. yeah. And I did that for a really long time. So it was like and you know how show business is like out of sight, out of mind. But I was really out of sight for, like I said, more than 15 years. I was hardly right. ever back in town. Uh, um, but you have this huge yeah. body of work to show for it. Well, I don't, I don't know if huge is the word, but um, <laughs> all of it is really, all of it is really careful. I mean, I really, you know, the stuff that I've been doing, it's, it's been uh, kind of, a, I had a clear idea of what I wanted it all to kind of feel like. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't just doing gigs, you know, and I wasn't doing right. things you know, people weren't calling me and saying, oh, we have this project. We want you to be involved. We have to create our own stuff, you know, right. 
and all of that is really, really time consuming. But the flip side of that is there wasn't a single aspect of the green room that wasn't completely well thought out in terms right. of, of its effect and what, what it is that we wanted to try and convey. You know, I used to get so frustrated both doing stand-up on TV and, and watching stand-up on TV. I used to get fr so frustrated because everything that to me was exciting about stand-up had to be cut out in order to be on TV. You know, you had yep. to make your mark, you have cameras and this, this and that, and, and everything you do as a stand-up had to, had to adapt for the production. Mm -hmm. And I said, what if we did it the other way around? Like, what if we decided that the production should adapt to the reality of stand-up that we find exciting? The yeah. spontaneity of it, the speed of it, the, the you know, the, and that's why we shot the green room the way we did. And I told you, you know, we brought cameras in and we experimented, like, what's the best way to get this vibe of what I'm feeling from this audience? This audience right. is really feeling like, you know, and, and the whole premise of it was, was you know, the, some of the greatest, most interesting uh, and, and, and times that I've had have been talking with comedians about things other than comedy, right? Philosophy, yeah. arts, politics, whatever you name it, you know, because comedians are really, I mean, most of them, you know, and I'm not talking about, you know, like if I were talking about music, I wouldn't be talking about garage bands, okay? So, right, 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 yeah, I'm talking about either, right, right, I'm talking about artists, you know, right, and, and really smart forward-thinking comedians who have some sense of, you know, some vision of what they're doing and they'd have some manifesto in their work, yeah. stated or unstated, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I just found, you know, that was life-changing for me when when that became a reality in my life when I was like 17. It was mm -hmm. absolutely life-changing to me. And it felt like well, this is a lifestyle, really. This is a way of existing in the world. And I always wanted to share that with an audience. I felt like if the audience could experience some of that they would see that it's more than just jokes that, that so you know that was the idea behind the green room i somebody had this time slot at the edinburgh fringe and they were like you can do whatever you want with it and yeah. um and so i was like let me try this again because it kind of I, I kind of started experimenting with that in the late 80s with the show i had on comedy central excuse me called comics only the premise of which was you know when i was a kid i loved watching the tonight show for the comics i didn't give a shit who else was on Right. And so I thought, Same. what if we do the Tonight Show just with comics? Yeah. And and so that was the original premise of that. But I, you know, it was more sophomoric than 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 I, you know, had uh, envisioned it to be. And I gave the comics, uh, all the comics on it. I gave them a choice: we can do prepared material, you know, I can set you up, and we can do prepared material, or we can just wing it and be spontaneous. You get the choice. And most of the comics at the time wanted a, sort of a mix of both. Yeah. Um, and. Um, uh, and we were doing weird sketches and, and, and bizarre sort of dark material on the sides and, and mm -hmm. all that stuff. But um, uh, but that was sort of from the same impulse of what if, you know, could I convey what it's like to just be surrounded by comedians all the time? Yeah. Uh, and and th that was not successful in that regard. It's whatever mm -hmm. the fuck it is. That's what it is. But it was it, it wasn't quite the thing that that uh, drove me. And um, green room kind of was. I was like, I'm going to try this again. And yeah. um, you know, the whole notion of you, you're someplace you're not really supposed to be. You know, Love that, that. Yeah. this is all comedians here, and we don't answer to anybody, and we're going to say whatever we want, and we're going to share it. And if it's funny, we're going to say it, or if not, and it's not necessarily always funny, right? Um, um, but we wanted that 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 energy of being in the room. In fact, when we when we were you know, staffing up the show, I was like, I want camera people who've done news and sports. 
I don't want camera people who are going to wait for somebody to hit their mark. I want them to follow the metaphorical ball. Yeah. Know? And that's why we shot it in the round, you know? Right. And, and um, uh, the idea that stuff can come from anywhere and it's going to be covered and it's going to have some sort of dynamic, you know, camera work. And, and we put the cameras in amongst the people. I remember at one point we were all setting it up. They were like, no, we have to put aisles in here for the cameras. Like, no, no, the cameras have to figure out how to get where they're supposed to be. That's nice. the whole point. Yeah. You know? uh, um, uh, so that was all really, really, really well thought out. Uh, even as much as like the logo, the draw, you know, the, the oh. opening credits and all, they're an homage to Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. You know, some real hipsters get that. Some real yeah. hipsters go, oh, I see that, you know, uh, which is just one of my favorite movies in the world because it mm -hmm. is the, it's the perfect synthesis of hilarious, weird, surreal satire and the fucking truth at the same yeah. time. You know, yeah. and so, you know, the conversations we had on there, we never, we, I never had an agenda. There were some things like I knew, like when Roseanne was on, I wanted to talk about this photo that she had done for, oh, so good. you know, so I, like I had those things ready to go because I wanted to talk to her about them, but we had no agenda and, and we made the decision to start the show mid conversation because we didn't want any of the conventional showbiz forms, any of the conventional TV forms, you know, there's no real introductions. It's just like it's like meeting people at a party. Hey, look, John Pavaramo just came in. You know, is that right. kind of a vibe? Um, um, we didn't shoot it in a studio. We just we created a space. We found a dance club here in in Los Angeles, and we created a space on the big open dance floor. Nice. I didn't want it to feel anything like you know show business. I wanted to just feel a little bit grittier and raw. Yeah. And that came from the experience of being in Edinburgh, where it's like this vibe. What happens here is just so free and so creative, and the audience is so supportive of things outside the norm, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, so that all drove that. So that was a time period where, for a long, a great deal of time, I was kind of out of show business here in America. But it was also one of the most creative and inspiring times of my professional life, and so much, so much stuff that I'm so proud of came out of those kind of paradigm shifts that were happening. Yeah, man, and that was an inspiring time for. I mean, I, I was. You know, I started comedy in 2005. Green Room came out, and it was one of those things that only made me want to get better to be able to be around comedians like that constantly and to be in a green room, like a, a green room setting that wasn't some shitty open mic somewhere. You know what I mean? Like where it was like, this is where the real conversations happen. One of the things I loved was like there were there were the audience was also kind of participatory because there were there were comedians in the audience watching well, everybody talk. Whose idea was it to do that? Here's the thing. Like I told you, there was like no, there was no decision, big or small, that wasn't all about. First of all, the, the production team, my producing partner Barbara Roman. Mm -hmm. This is just the way she loves to operate. So this was a no-brainer for us together right. as producing partners. But then we brought in, you know, line producers and you know, sound people and the head of camera and all that sort of stuff. And everybody got onto the same page right away because mm -hmm. I said, if everybody's on the same page and they just do what they do. We don't have to micromanage any of this, right? right? Like even the set, we didn't want, you know, people would come in with these ideas for sets and everything. And I'd say, everything feels like a normal set. So we found that the, the guy who ultimately did it, whose name escapes me at the moment, I apologize so much because he was brilliant. Um, he, he he was a guy who was who did set design, but his background was in fine art. And I oh. brought him in, we talked a little bit and I said to him, I said, I don't want a set, I want an art piece. 
And he came up with what we ultimately had, which I said, you know, we're, I want it to feel like the basement of a theater or a comedy club. I want to see elements of, you know, that's why people are sitting on beer kegs and stacks of, you know, uh, crates of, of beer bottles, as well as chairs and pillows on the floor and stuff. I wanted it to be loose. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't set up like a performance space. You know? But he created this piece, which is almost a sort of an arch uh, uh, um, serenity of, of like old wooden chairs and mic stands and pieces of mic stands yeah. and some cable around them and, and lights and light trees, the kind of stuff that if you go to a theater, you know, you go into the basement, it's all the shit that they haven't gotten fixed yet that needs the repairman to come and take a look at all that shit. And he yeah. created this thing and, 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 and I loved it because it was, it, there was something artful about it and it was specific and non-specific at the same time. It wasn't right. a step per se, and it was specific in that, oh, everything that he used is some shit you would find in a green room or basement of a club or theater or something yeah. like that. Um, it really made audience, it look like all of you were about to go on. The audience is the same thing. Like when when the first budget was run, there was, you know, I don't know how many, a couple thousand dollars for audience services, right? Mm. And that's what all talk shows have audience services that will wow. go and make sure that the audience is full. And they would go to like, you know, the line of people waiting to get in the Tonight Show and they would hand out tickets and people would show up. You know, it was that mm. kind of thing. And I was like, fuck, let's put that money back in the budget. Let's pay the comedians some more because we don't need that. And the entire audience was invited personally by myself and Barbara Roman. Uh, it was our personal email list. So wow. everybody that was in that audience were people who spent time in green rooms. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. That's incredible. I'm telling you, there was not a detail that we didn't say what's what is getting closest to the truth of this, the authenticity of this. You know, I, I just didn't want an audience in there that didn't belong in a green room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you had a lot of comics. Yeah. A lot of comics. There were a lot of agents and managers that showed up. There were a lot of musicians, you know. Wow. Uh, and 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 as the show went on, we did we ultimately did 14 episodes, but after the first few the word got out that this is just like the coolest taping to be at. Cause we also had a party beforehand. Oh, that was no the way. other things. I didn't want it to feel at all. Like, cause that was another thing that just drove me crazy. If you go to a taping of any, any talk show, mm -hmm. the, the audience is like, they're like hostages. And it's like, you know, you have to stand here. You have to sit there. You can't get up and go to the bathroom until like somebody says you can, you can't do mm -hmm. this, whatever. People end up starving and thirsty and they can't do anything. Yeah. We were like, fuck that. We had a party on the patio of this venue before people came in to where we were already sitting in conversation. And wow. then they came in and filled in around us. And it was, you know, around that time that we would end up uh, um, starting the, sh the show that ended up on television. Uh, um, uh, and then we did two shows a night. And so everybody would get up, go back onto the patio for more partying. Yeah. And, uh, um, and then come back for the next taping. So word got out that it was just the most fun taping to be at. And by the second season, it was like, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't hold enough people. Second season was incredible. Um, uh, yeah. And we did a couple at, at Montreal too, which was fun. That was, really that was good. cool too, because I liked, uh, when, when Bill Burr was on, he literally left in the middle of it. He was like made yeah. a killer points was hilarious. And then was like, I got a set in five minutes. I got to go. And then you were just like, yep. See you later, yeah. or whatever. And then that was we, it. We didn't, we didn't give a shit about any conventions at all. Right. At all. Yeah. Um, and there was another um, another episode that I felt was like, to me, it's like the most authentically a real green room 
was the episode with uh, Doug Stanhope, David Tell, Janine Garofalo, Richard Belzer, uh, and um, who else was on? Oh, Mark. No, who else was on that episode? And at one point during that episode, uh, first of all, Stanhope and Janine get into a little thing. Oh, right, right, right. David you know, Tell, yeah. Tell, Stanhope, Janine, yeah, they were all on the same couch. Yeah. And, and, and you know, they got into a thing which was it kept light and everything, but it was it was a real thing, you mm -hmm. know. And then at one point, I just had to take a leak. So I just got up and left the room and went and, and went to take a leak. And they just carried on. And so it just felt like a real green room to me. It felt like this is there's so little acknowledgement of the fact that this is being made for television. That it right. Made my, heart, made my heart sore. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I loved seeing that kind of shit too because it felt like you guys were all having a good time. Everybody knew each other or knew of each other. Even if it was people who just met for the first time, the bond there was comedy and performing and being in that kind of environment. And they got that the, that the whole thing was about respect for the art form and the people who do it. Yeah, and there was no judgment about anything. And you know, and 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 there's some, I mean, like the episode with Patrice and Bob Saget. There's yeah. some real deep conversation happening there about, you know, life choices and things. And I knew that real substantive dialogue would happen because it never has not happened to me when I'm in a room full of, of talented comedy artists. Right. It's never not happened. And um, uh, much to my surprise, Showtime was like, all right, let's see what happens. You know, and there was one episode where we smoked out on TV. And that was actually <laughs> the first that was actually the first time that that's ever happened. And, and unfortunately, yeah. the show was was, uh, you know, not as well known among the general public. It took a while for mo most people are ending up seeing it on, on uh, YouTube, you know, right. uploads. But um, uh, so it didn't get any sort of attention. And I think somebody else did. I think Bill Maher, I don't know, somebody else did something. And it got all this press and everything. And, and we oh, didn't, yeah. but, you know, we literally, I remember that is the episode Proops was on. Yeah. Uh, we said, does anybody have any pot? And like 20 people come rushing up <laughs> with pipes and joints. and It was hilarious. Yeah, that was great. Did you get, I mean, and Bill Maher did, yeah, you're right. They got a lot of press. I remember watching the two episodes and thinking, uh, he's the second person to do this, but he's getting all the press for it. Because he smoked yeah. with Galifianakis. Uh, he smoked with Galifianakis. Yeah, on the show, on HBO. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what it yeah. was, yeah. Yeah. Well, I had a, a great little a great little lifetime Oscar uh, moment where I got to smoke pot with Tommy John. How many people? That's right. That? Yeah, that's true, man. How we had Tommy on the show? He's fucking great, man. He's great. He's, he's great, and he's so smart. And I loved yeah. his story. I was so glad he got, went into such detail on his story. Yeah, man. Um, uh, yeah, it was so great not having anything planned and just and so that was the people in the audience. You know, would contribute something, or you know, at one point I did a, a, a I played a clip of Lee Camp, who I knew was going to be the audience, and I knew that Roseanne would love this clip, so I yeah. did have that set up. But again, it was like if I, I there were things I wanted to do that I never got to because it wasn't really a we didn't really have a plan. Yeah, was there was there like a guest that you really wanted to have on that you didn't get to grab in time? Oh, bunches. I will tell you, at one point I almost had the possibility. Well, I did have the possibility. Of having both Mel and Carl, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner together oh on the show. Wow. And um, this was for this the second season, somebody had taken over at Showtime who is not really uh, the guy you want running comedy. Right. And uh, his response to that was, nah, it's two old guys. Oh my God. Wow. 
Horrible. You know, it was his big his big complaint about season one was that we did an episode with Robert Klein and Jonathan Winters, which was so. I was just thinking about that one. It was great. Uh, I'm like, you know, what what are you talking? That's that was a, a problem for you, yeah, right? It wasn't a hip enough show. Like, oh my god. You know, yeah, but for the most part, they were great. It was just when he took over that became a thing, but so I didn't pursue because you have to, you know, a bit of convincing to get those guys to come on you mm -hmm. know, a show, um, yeah, it, through the through the uh, uh, thanks to Dan Pasternak that Jonathan Winters came on the show. Dan Pasternak, um, who great I'm guy. working on some other projects with, yeah, brilliant guy. He He's the guy who teaches me about comedy, uh, wow. and, and uh -huh. um. And he and Jonathan had become very good friends, and he had introduced me to Jonathan. And he would take me, and then I brought Rick Overton up, so we could all go. Because what Jonathan needed was people to play with, you know, yeah. comedy minds to play with. And he loved when when we would go up there and do stuff. A lot of people used to go. I, I, you know, I think Belzer used to go up and hang out with them. I think Billy Crystal used to pop in, and um, but so um, was Robin uh, gone at that point when when Jonathan Winters was on. I can't remember. No, I can't either now. Sure. No, no, no. He wasn't no? on yet. No. Okay. But um, um, but here's the thing: is that Robert Klein, who's an idol of mine, mm -hmm. was a huge Jonathan Winters fan. I had never met him. So wow, it was so great to have Klein on with him because it was like Robert Klein was to Jonathan Winters as I was to Robert Klein. You know, right. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, and they were just brilliant, you know, and, and Jonathan's stories were so, you know, human and real. And, uh, you know, the guy was at the time, he would say, I think, like 84 years old and he was still like, you know, dealing with father issues and stuff and very upfront about it. And it was good. And his son said, I think after the taping, Jonathan's son said, I, I think it just added another year to my father's life. Like, it, wow. It wow. Invigorated by it, you know, um, uh, and the and this new guy at Showtime, which is me, 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 old guys, no vision, man. But I think I think that's like almost like what to me, like your career is very much like I like watches, right? But I would never want a Rolex, right? So if you're saying yeah. the epitome of like a great watch is a is a Rolex, like this comedian so and so who packs a theater, but I'd much rather be the guy that wears like an IWC. Where the mm -hmm. people that know what a watch is are impressed, and everybody else you could walk through the crowd with, and I think that's what you are. You're the like you are everybody that's in the know knows you and would go to see you and wants and wants to hear what you have to say. Whereas you know, just because you're not telling the current climate of what that executive was looking for to pack that theater, doesn't mean yours isn't a greater gift to the art form, right? I don't know. That's my perspective. You know what? I think there's room on the shelf for everything. And um, yeah. uh, after all is said and done, I mean, Showtime, they were great. I mean, they bought the show in a pitch. And yeah. um, uh, and basically the show was, it's going to be funny, I promise you. You know, that was basically <laughs> it. Uh, but they loved also the uh, the whole idea of, you know, that the audience isn't supposed to be here and, um, and that, you know, this is a private space for comedians. They loved that because that was at the time where they were like, Showtime no limits you know yeah 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 not exactly but anyway <laughs> um, uh so you know i can't really complain about that but but um um the uh thank you for your kind words uh about that but you know to me it's just like well i think you know there are people who are going to want to see the hottest you know newest uh Name. star sure. there is and then there are people who are going to 
you know, want to see Jonathan Winters. I mean, it's Jonathan Winters. You know, yeah. I know the Jonathan yeah. Winters episode is going to be in a, a in, in a time capsule for sure. You mm -hmm. know, and um, um, in fact, you know, the Gary Shandling episode, uh, Judd Apatow used a bunch of clips from that episode yep. in the Gary Shandling documentary because Gary was more uh, open about a lot of stuff that meant a lot to him at the time than he had ever been on anything else. So Judd, who was actually at that taping too, was on the show. You know, he said, can I use some of that? Because it's the, the there is nothing else of Gary doing that, you know, being yeah. that guy. Yeah. Uh, um, so I feel like that's a, that's, that's kind of a cool legacy to leave behind. But really everything that I've been doing in the last at least 20 years of my life, everything that I've been doing professionally, every project that I've been creating or trying to get out there is for me at the age of 14. You know, I really feel like there's some 14 year old out there who's a real comedy fan. You know, I think to myself, if, when I was 14, if I could watch the green room show, I would be like in heaven, yep. you know, uh, it's, that's really what motivates everything. It's like when I yeah. think about what I want it to be, it's like, I want it to be something that gets me at 14 excited. Yeah. And that's the thing too, man. Satiristas is one of those books that I, that I, when it came out, I would carry it with me to every comedy gig I had whenever I was sitting in a hotel room, man, I'd flip through those pages because there's a ton of knowledge from comedians that you do and don't know. And the way you guys kind of go about it in that book, interviewing them or whatever, it's like, how could you not try to absorb as much knowledge from people who have done it for years before you or, yeah. you know, yeah. or have a different way of thinking before you again, like, I, I really don't understand people going, oh, Jonathan Winters, who cares? Like one, he was super fucking sharp on that show. Funny as anybody else who was young and hip or whatever. And but he also had that wisdom about him too and i just don't like it's it's cool that you kind of compiled all this knowledge it really is it's aristocrats satiristas green room and then also the set list stuff that you've been doing too just showcases comedians in a different light in a different way too it's insane yeah well set list is about set list is about sort of just that you know that spark of creativity and, and that in that moment of figuring mm -hmm. out you know something really funny and panic at a left field you know yeah. and, and and watching it play out i mean it's really about watching the comics gears work you know yeah which is cool. robin actually was a huge fan of the show uh, um and he used to ask if he could come and do it and uh yeah okay um <laughs> you know it's it's interesting because you think well robin williams he's sort of well known for being you know so fast on his feet and improvisational and everything but mm -hmm. that's the thing about setlist that and why troy conrad is such a genius and, and why and so many people said what you know what if you know the audience do the suggestions and they're like no because right. the suggestions are created by people that know the process. They're created mm -hmm. by comedians, mostly yeah. Troy himself. And 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 that's the thing that Robin and a number of people uh, responded to was that, like, they would get these prompts or these ideas or these suggestions or, you know, sometimes really just random words. Like, I remember one time we just put up three. You know, that was the first <laughs> yeah. You know, I had to create a piece out of the word three, you know. Right. And and Robin loved that because it's not completely just like, you know, what can you see in the room? What can you wear? There's a little bit of a constraint to it. 
Yeah. That, you know, yeah. art thrives on limitations. And so the weird thing is that for a guy like Robin or uh, Ross Noble is another one. He's an Australian comedian who is, yeah. lives in the UK now. No, actually lives both UK and Australia, but he's very big in the UK. And he's one of these brilliant, very Robin Williams-esque. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely brilliant. He's an extraordinary comedian. If you don't know him, you should check him out. I Ross do, yeah. Noble. He's amazing. Uh, yeah. Um, um, and he said the same thing. He's like, you know, he goes like, this is actually harder than working the way I normally work because I can just say whatever I think of, but you've actually forced me to concentrate on something that I, that I have no connection to. Right. And, uh, and that's the genius of set list and why Troy is, you know, what he's done there is so brilliant. Um, is that it, it? It is both liberating and constraining at the same time in different amounts for different people, depending on what kind of a creative artist you are. It's just right. an amazing experience. I mean, I've seen the show thousands of times all over the world with comedians from of every stripe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Eddie Izzard did it once. And he just stopped in the middle and he went, this is fucking hard. <laughs> Crack me up. Yeah, are you familiar with Tim Minchin? Yeah, I love yeah. Tim Minchin. Tim Minchin is just brilliant, right? He had just done an entire week at the O2 Arena in London. Wow. And, we're doing that, it would, and he came to do set list at the Soho Theater in the little basement room, which seated like maybe 90 people. And right. he was texting from the, from the green room just going, this uh, this is the scariest show I'm about to do right now ever in my life, and he had just done the O2 Arena, right? And, yeah, and, and uh, um, I forget who it was it said um, it's the closest you'll come to the first time you ever did stand up. Wow, that's what doing set list is like because you really have no idea. You have to let go completely of outcome, so it's this weird Zen thing. Yeah, you know, you either you either embrace it or 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 you don't, you know. Right. Uh, um, so yeah, so that was a really fun thing, and 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 our instinct of it was right was that you know you can do this in any language, you can do it anywhere in the world because the creative impetus yeah. is identical. That's a, it's a human thing, you know. If yeah. you're a comedian, that's the sort of god particle, if you will. Oh, you know, yeah. so it plays to everybody and anybody. Uh, right. Um, so that's been a really, really exciting show to do. And we sold it to TV in the UK. We did 14 episodes and we had people on it. Like, uh, and what we did was we had Americans, we had Brits, we had Australians, um, mm -hmm. because we felt like we could do this all over the world. And, yeah. you know, um, um, there was, was very, there's a very well-known comedian in uh, Germany who wanted to do it on German television, you know? Oh, wow. Um, uh, and so... The ones we did for for the UK, we shot in Los Angeles. We shot outside of San Francisco because Robin wanted to do it, and we wanted to make it so easy for him to roll out of bed and show up to do it. So we put it right in his backyard. That's and great. And some in London. And I mean, uh, Maria Bamford, Gilbert Gottfried, Fred Willard, uh, Hannibal Burris, uh, John Doerr, uh, um, uh, Robin did it. Eddie Pepitone. Uh, Drew Carey. Uh, I mean, who's that drew carey uh drew carey we flew him to london to do it that was a blast yeah. hanging out with him there uh um uh, and then there were you know some pretty well-known british comics like russell kane and roisin connady and think of trying to think head. of one that i know and i'm blanking on his skinny kid uh he was on last comic standing when amy schumer was on matt kershen uh, matt kershen matt kershen yeah 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 he was on it he was great yeah, he's great. He's brilliant. And and yeah. he's it's really funny to watch him watch because when when I first met Matt, 
he was just starting out in comedy and I looked at him and I just went like this. I said, you're a writer. Ooh. And he was like, okay, whatever. And he just came to me about a year ago. We were talking and he said, I'll never forget that you, you, that you did that to me. And he goes, I didn't really know what to make of it. Guess what? What? I'm a writer now. I, have a, I mean, he's also a performer, uh, but he's right. got recognized as a writer and he was on the writing staff of Jim Jeffrey's show and a couple mm. other shows. And, uh, and he was like, man, you, you, you called it. And so you watch him do it. And it's like watching a writer work. Right. Kind of like you how Carla would do Pepitone it. You watch do it. And it's like watching, uh, you know, a performer, you know, yes. figure out. It's just such a fascinating show. And then again, all the kudos goes to Troy Conrad uh, for that. But I know, you're, I know you're working on like new stuff now. How the hell do you leave this kind of, do you, do you feel like this stuff is finished? Like green room? Are you in your mind? Are you like, we had a good run and it's over now. Same thing with set list. Or are you always like, I could no, return. I, I, this is what I was saying is we, we sold, you know, we did 14 episodes for British television and I yeah. thought for sure we'd be able to sell it to a network here. And, right. you know, in my head, it was going to be okay. They'll acquire those fourteen episodes because a bunch of American celebrities on it too. You know, yeah. They'll acquire those fourteen episodes, and then we'll do some more new ones here out of you know as an American production. Uh, um, but nobody bit, and nobody wants. Nobody's bought the show, and nobody's right. ever seen the British show here. In fact, there's only about two or three clips from it online. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, and made sure that stuff didn't show up because we didn't want to muddy the waters. Like we want, we wanted to sell the show here and say this has not been seen. You know, right. um, I think the only clips online are, are um, Robin, uh, Gilbert Gottfried. There's a clip True. of him and there's a clip of Maria Bamford. But yeah. I think that's about it. Uh, but nobody bought it. And I don't know. I don't I have no idea what to do about that. Uh, and I tried to get the green room because green room, obviously, I own the IP. I could do it anywhere I want. Um, yeah. Um, haven't been able to get either of them back, but no, for a long time, I really just assumed that I would be able to get one or both of those shows going. Uh, it just hasn't happened. Wow. So um, uh, I'm not done with it. And you know, people, a lot of people, because, because Green Room started as a, a live show, uh, you know, and, and we did a lot of live versions of it. Uh, we did a bunch of them at the Just for Laughs Festival. Some of them were phenomenal. One of them we did yeah. in the theater. Andy Kindler and Michael Shea and like four or five <laughs> other comedians. And it was like one of the greatest things. And I would get so frustrated after them going, Jesus, why are we running cameras? You know, because right. that's kind of the nature of the beast is always lightning in a bottle. And I would always feel like, God damn it. Every time, you know, um, is there um, any, is there any extra footage? Like how, how, when were you film? Like, when did you start filming? And then when did you, cause I know you said you'd like to start in mid conversation. So how oh, much of it? Room? Yeah. Well, um, well, we were on, because we did two shows a night, we were on a little bit of a tight schedule. So I would say, you know, the shows are a half hour, and we shot at least an hour. Wow. Uh, in some cases, maybe an hour and 15, you know. Um, okay. Um, we didn't cut out that much, really. Mm -hmm. uh, um, in fact, you know, as much as I talk about, you know, we were really striving for the authenticity of it. So, you know, it's like, you know, you're not going to tell them. And then so-and-so got up to go to the bathroom or so-and-so said this. And, and then and then we got off topic for 10 minutes and then we came back and so-and-so said that. You know, you're not going to do that. You're just going to tell the narrative right. of why it was such a great night. And that was right. sort of the motivation behind the editing was I wanted to, to you know, what it is is we, we talked for an hour, an hour and 15. And, you know, this is a film of of my recollection of what happened, you yeah. know, uh, um, which is, 
actually probably more authentic than, than actually sitting there and watching everybody, you know, uh, get up to speed. Uh, oh yeah. But, uh, um, yeah. And, and, and again, because the camera work is so dynamic, it made it so easy to cut because, you know, stuff just sort of flowed intuitively even when it didn't flow visually, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was the thing too, man. I always felt like comedy, like I, you know, like I always kind of described comedy in a way as like, you know, when you were a kid, there was always that uncle, like every time there was like a family gathering, there was somebody, everybody would be waiting to see. And he'd come in from the outside. He'd be wearing a jacket. He'd grab a piece of cake. Everybody would be happy to see him. Tell a few stories, quick jokes. Everybody would be laughing. Blah, blah, blah. And then he'd fucking leave. Never take his jacket off. <laughs> you know. And then that was it. And I was like, that is what I like. That's how I think of comedy. I go in with oh, a is, jacket on stage. Yeah. That's great. Well, actually, you know, I was really, I, I was, at first we were kind of upset that we, that, that Showtime just wanted to do a half hour show. Cause we really thought it was an hour show. We really thought mm -hmm. it's, it's sustained for an hour. Like who wouldn't want to watch an hour of hanging out? Yeah. With people, right. Yeah. But after the fact, after the first, you know, after cutting down the first handful of episodes, like, you know what, there's something really great about it being a half hour. It's almost right. like it fucking got whipped. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you're like, where the fuck did everybody go? Are they leaving? You're leaving already? Or when are you coming back? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, so they turned out to be right about that. Yeah, that's um, pretty great. That's the other great thing about, you know, that Zen thing of letting go of outcome is that sometimes, you know, it, it surprises you in a way that you didn't think would be right. But yeah. there it is. It's, it turns out to be better. You know? Are you guys doing another? Yeah. I, have, I have Dan Dion I would love to do. I would love to do the green room again somewhere, but yeah. I can't find anybody. And, you know, a lot of people have talked about doing it low budget, doing it online, all this sort of stuff. But in the mm -hmm. intervening years, yeah. right, it's almost a decade now since right. we did. I think it's like nine, eight, nine years. Uh, um, in the intervening years, it ultimately is now really just a big glorified podcast. Yeah. In, in, in some ways, you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But the only reason you could get, you know, Gary Shandling and Robin Williams and, and oh, actually Robin wasn't on that one, but um, uh, he mm -hmm. wanted to do it too. That was another bummer. I told him, I showed him, I said, Robin wants to do it, right? You know, before they decided not to pick up a third season. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. um, that would have been but, incredible. But so, you know, the, the, the way you can get a Jonathan Winters or a Gary Shandling or a Ray Romano on the show is because it's not just a podcast. Right. Means, you know, some serious production. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, commitment. Let, you know, so let me up. ask you this, though, because I know you were very meticulous about who was going to be on. If you were to have Robin on, who are you going to have on with him? Don't know. That's one of the things. Um, it's funny you mention that, but yeah, it's like like my big creative stamp on it really is the combinations of people. In fact, we scrapped entire shows because one person dropped out. Wow. It wasn't about, well, who's available? We have a slot to fill. That was not right. the point. Uh, you know, there's a reason Caroline Ray is on that show with Colin Quinn. You know, there's yeah. a reason yeah. that Kamel Nanjani is on the show with with Richard Belzer. There's a reason. It's funny, too, because when we had the lineup with, with um, we had um, Judd Apatow, Ray Romano, Mark Marin, and um, who else was on? Uh, Gary Shandling and Bo Burnham. And Gary Shandling. We had, I had Shandling, Marin, Romano, and uh, no, Bo wasn't on it yet. And I was looking at oh. the lineup, and I was like, you know, people, other people, you know, from the production would come in and go, "Oh, that's a, that's going to be a great show. Those are also great." <laughs> and I was like, "No, no, it's not quite. It's, something's not right." And then while I was talking about this with one of our line producers. Uh, 
I get a phone call saying, Bo Burnham's on the line. And I was like, because I had called him to see if he wanted to be on. And I just went, that's it. That's why the show has five people on it. Wow. Uh, I was like, oh, that's it. And it's like by putting Bo on that show, suddenly it became interesting to me. Yeah. It wasn't just the fact that we have yeah. Judd and Ray and Mark Marin and uh, who the fuck else was on that? I can't remember. No, I think it was it was Ray Romano, Mark Marin, Gary Shandling, Judd Apatow, Bo Burnham. I think that was it. There were five people, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, uh, but it was like, it was that kind of thing. It's like, you know, I, I was really not thrilled with that lineup until Bo became a part of it. And then wow. I was like, now I see how everybody is going to connect to Bo in mm -hmm. a different way. Yeah. You know? And yeah. I knew Bo because I've, I've known Bo since he was like 16. Oh, um, wow. And, uh, I tried to do a project with him. I remember Super Deluxe? Yes. Yeah. I, I was, they asked me to do some stuff and I was like, you know, I want to do something with this kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember calling Bo and I said, hi, my name is Paul Provenza. And he goes, you're not really Paul Provenza. And I was like, <laughs> first of all, the fact that you know who I am, I automatically love you. You're genius. <laughs> uh, um, you know, that really taught me right off the bat that, oh, this guy's a deep diver already at 15, yeah. 16. He was 16. Uh, and then he said, he had, you know, he had to call back because he was you know, on a school trip or something. And I was like, how the fuck old oh are you? you know? That's and I booked him in the Lakeshore Theater in Chicago. And it was like his first live gig was at Montreal, uh, the Just for Laughs Festival. And, and then I booked him in this Lakeshore Theater in Chicago. And he, he had to come with his dad. You know, he, he was too young. He wasn't even right. 18. Um, so i kind of go way back with him and right from the get-go i knew this is a, this is a really special cat this kid is yeah. this kid is too smart for his own good you know right. uh, i mean like two years into doing stand-up comedy he was like this whole thing is a sham <laughs> <It's> like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> um, pretty great um so i had this connection with bo and i knew that judd knew of bo, of bo and in mm. fact they were negotiating a deal to do something together at the time nice. uh, um and um i knew that mark didn't know him from adam right I, gary didn't know him from adam and mm. i thought that's going to be hilarious you know yeah. because i also knew that bo is so smart that gary would be shocked and surprised at how smart this kid is right and it's exactly how yeah. it played out um and, you know putting patrice and roseanne and bob saget on the same show was a really elaborate chemistry like yeah. there's really a lot going on with there because i knew that patrice you know if you ever see patrice on uh you know tough crowd or yes, yes. Listen to yeah. on opie and anthony you know he's he's a bully yep uh but i knew yeah. that patrice also and my relationship with patrice was different I, I never experienced that with him like we would have real heart to hearts but I, I always i never felt like he was bullying me into anything but i knew that he that that, that was his nature right yeah so I knew that if he were on with Roseanne, he would be intimidated by Roseanne because oh. it's funny how that works, right? Right. Uh, um, but I knew that Roseanne yeah. had seen him on TV and she didn't know his name. And, but she had said, she said, that guy's really something. Right. But I didn't tell Patrice that Roseanne had ever seen him. So oh. Patrice was intimidated. But I put Bob on the show because Bob and Patrice, they had been on the road together. So mm -hmm. I knew they knew each other. And I knew that Bob who I've known since 1975, by the way. Wow. Um, um, I knew that Bob's instinct is to just be doing shtick the whole time. Right. And corny jokes and being goofy, Bob, you know, which mm -hmm. is brilliant and hilarious. But I wanted something more interesting. And I knew that Patrice would not allow Bob to not get interesting. 
because Patrice won't he won't stand for that. If we're having a right. real conversation, Patrice will make you have a real conversation whether you want to or not. So yeah. it was a really interesting dynamic. And again, it was just from knowing these personalities and knowing these people and knowing their histories and what, who knew what, whatever. And of course, Sandra was on it to give Roseanne a comfort level. And I've been a huge Sandra fan. When I, I first moved out to LA in, in 1980, and I met Sandra Bernhardt then, and I thought she was amazing, completely right. unique, completely yeah. unique. Absolutely, you know, yeah, and really a, a real strong point of view and an interesting character. You know, she, Sandra Bernhard, wanted to be the kind of woman that she wasn't, and created that character, did that character on stage, and became it. Right. And so I think Sandra's just yeah. absolutely a fascinating character, and and I knew that Sandra and Roseanne obviously had worked together, so I was like, Sandra. Who I love, I, I know she would rise to any occasion in any conversation. You know, mm -hmm. I knew that. And when she'll give Roseanne a level of comfort, Roseanne will keep Patrice in line. Patrice will keep <laughs> in line. And it was like it was kind of this, this experiment, and it just worked out beautifully. Wow. So that was really my sort of, you know, creative stamp on the show was like, I'm putting the right people together to get some interesting shit going on. You're like a mixologist, but for comedy, man. You're it's kind of like it's yeah. kind of like I was making cocktails. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're like, what the fuck? You're that right. is incredible. And then I just man. got out of everybody's way. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Which was great yep. fun. Great yeah, fun. that was always. Oh man. I'm sorry. I don't mean to dwell on that, but you guys keep asking great questions. No, um, no, no, dude. I I'm like obsessed with that show. I fucking loved it for so long. And the and the Satirista's book was also just feel like an almost like an extension of it because it was people that I didn't really get to see on the show. Um and heavy conversations, obviously. Really, once again, it's another one of those things that goes way off point because it's more interesting. You know, I mean, like when you hear Janine talk about religion, that's not really about satire. That's more right. about about Janine. But boy, yeah. it informs everything else. And I it tried. It took yeah. a long time to edit that book, man. Um, because because they all flow into each other, and that was a really difficult, uh, challenging, just structural thing was to have people pick up on each other's thoughts. Right. You know? Yeah. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I when when I did the interviews, they were very free form. You know that that has a lot to do with why, um, you know, I, I I decided to back away from performing for a while because doing this stuff that's that's sort of not putting me out in front, right, is where is where I can have the epiphanies. You know, was, was, was that oh, feeding your soul more, like to be and from that angle of it? Well, I, I just, I never realized how fulfilling that could feel. You know, I, I, I feel like, first of all, you know, Drew Carey and I had a long conversation once about doing comedy that comes from egolessness. Yes. You know, which is really hard because it's you on a stage and people are paid to come and see you and to hear you and your thoughts and what you have to say. It's really hard to, to be working in comedy and still kind of embrace egolessness. Mm -hmm. And um, the kind of stuff that I'm doing is closer to that without, you know, without putting myself out in front. I'm putting other people out in front and I'm yeah. sort of, you know, trying to contextualize their work in a way that creates something a little bit different. And, you know, and, and uh, so I'm kind of enjoying being, you know, so I'm, I'm working on a couple of doc projects right now and I, and I love them because it's, it's, it's not about me. It's about, you know, I mean, it's about me in that. There's a million ways you can put this stuff together and I'm putting it together in the way that is, you know, the way yeah. I want to express it, but it's not me that that's out in front, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, you're the conductor in a sense, you know what I mean? Like, I guess that's part of it. Yeah. 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 
Um, yeah, if, uh, and to be honest, absolutely everybody that I'm working with is way the fuck funnier than I am. So you know, <laughs> why not sit back and enjoy that? Well, you were, was there, was there like a, cause I think Satiristas came out around 2004. I could be wrong. 2006, 2004. Uh, or, or no, maybe? no, see, later. 2005, Satiristas. Yeah. About, and no, that was actually maybe about 2010. Okay. Cause it was like, I remember thinking like there were, there were, I, you had really interesting people in it and talking about awesome stuff that I'd never heard them talk about before, which was great. And then it was like, was it a conscious? Cause I feel like John Stewart popped like around that time, really huge too, but you had Colbert in there instead, which I didn't get to hear a lot. Was that a conscious effort? Well, like to uh, you know, um, the people that have not gotten involved with these projects are, you know, that's a whole other, you know, oh, okay. interesting things. Uh, and not, I'm not, I don't mean that in a critical way. Um, mm. but I mean, it's like, everybody thinks, everybody thinks Jerry Seinfeld is in the aristocrats. He's not, you know, they just, because no, no. everybody else is, you know, right. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, that's kind of funny to me that if you yeah. have enough people contributing to something, it doesn't matter who's not contributing. Right. To so it didn't matter that Jon Stewart wasn't in it, you know? Right. Um, but, um, that was purely, uh, you know, that was purely cause John was way, way too busy to do anything. And gotcha. you, know, I mean, you have to deal with the realities of life and, and people's schedules and all that yeah. sort of stuff. And, um, uh, um, and, and then management, you know, sure. uh, um, sometimes managers are, you know, just like, don't get involved with anything. That's not a million dollar deal. You know, uh, <laughs> um, uh, you're too big for that, you know? Right. Uh, right. But the, the reason that Stephen Colbert is in it actually is a bit of a fluke because he, I, I mean, I know him from way back when. I, I'd met him. I don't really know him, you know. Mm -hmm. But I had met him and, of course, watched his rise and um, had yeah. written a couple of pieces about how what he was doing was just, like, almost indefinable. Right. You know, it was some sort of alchemy that he was doing that I just thought was, you know, really breathtaking. Yeah. And, uh, um I was at the time I was uh, a regular on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me the NPR. Oh yeah yeah, that's a great yeah. show. Yeah, and Stephen Colbert was one of the phone-in guests on an episode that I happened to be on. Um, and nice. actually, in the middle of the taping, I said, "Hey Stephen, can I call you about something else?" And you know, and he was like, "Aren't we in like the middle of the taping?" And he said, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> uh, and then I called him and and did the interview with him over the phone. Um, but it was one of those weird flukes that, you know, I probably couldn't have gotten to him and couldn't have gotten his attention to pay enough time, you know, pay to give me the time or focus enough. Cause he's also pretty busy at the time. Right. So that turned out to be kind of a fluky thing, but I was really oh, delighted cool. because I think that he's so extraordinary. And so many of the other comedians in the book talked about the work that he was doing being like, it's mysterious, you know, yeah. for, it's a hard thing to do the comedy math on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and well, that was cool for me, too, because it was the first time I think I'd really seen him talk to another comedian about something like that extensively. You know what I mean? There were it was yeah, really, really yeah. deep stuff about the comedy and the art of it and his own philosophical belief, you know, about doing that kind of shit. So I thought, yeah. oh, my God, what a great addition to this book, because he's not talking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was cool. pretty great. I like that. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, well, listen, I kept you for an hour and a half. I want to thank you for coming on because I feel like I could just talk to you forever. I know. Uh, Let's do that sometime. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, you I have no future. You may as well be it. <laughs> <laughs> um, two things. One, I got to ask you the big three questions that we ask every guest that's coming on. But Greg Proofs did tell me to tell you to say hi and that the sorry he wasn't coming on next. We had to reschedule him. Do you have anything My to say boss. to Greg? 
I I adore you. I, oh, I, I love you in a way that is inappropriate for another man. <laughs> <laughs> I will let him. I will let him know. It's funny. We were I, we were hanging out with Colin Mockery the other night, and I told him Greg was coming on too, and he goes, "Great." Just say hello to Greg and then sit yeah. back and yeah. an hour and a half will go by. Yeah. Well, look at his podcast. His podcast is like, it's like James Joyce had a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. That's I really, love it. He's, he's the best. He's hilarious. And a beautiful guy too. He's a great human being. Awesome. Really like I can't wait. Um, and you're welcome to come back on when he's on too, by the way, as soon as we reschedule him, you can, you All can right. pop out anytime you want. This is your show now. Um, and uh, so I'll put a stop to it. <laughs> <laughs> the longest time I was like the, I, every show that I, 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 I ended up being brought into casts when shows were already like, you know, in their decline, you know, like I went into, you know, Northern exposure as it right. was, you know, in its winding down, right? I went out yeah. to ne Empty Nest and it's winding down. There were a couple of others like that where I got brought in, you know, long after it right. reached its peak. And I, I so I was uh, actually had in my uh, resume at one point, it said, Paul Provenza, the scourge of prime time. <laughs> <laughs> you want to kill a show? You bring me in. As soon as they hang your photo up on the hallway wall, it just starts to crack the, the foundation. Yeah. I, by the way, I got to tell you now, because you brought it up, I fucking love Empty Nest. Um, that's a great show. Richard Mulligan, fucking hysterical. We had Marsha Warfield on and I, I said to her that she has the same theory. Cause I said, how come all these shows are in fucking rerun? Why is it empty nest? And she goes, I have a theory that any show that I'm on. <laughs> and I was like, she goes, they refuse to give me residuals. So they just won't show it. And you know what? Marsha Warfield, one of the greatest standups ever. Yep. She is phenomenal. Genius. Uh, um, uh, I still quote one of one line of hers that just slays me where she talks about, uh, she said, um, this is old stuff. She doesn't do this anymore. But um, she said, um, I was reading one of these, you know, Cosmopolitan or whatever. And they said, this, the, uh, the sexiest thing for, on a man, women, women, they polled women and they said the sexiest part of a man is his eyes. And she just goes, I have eyes. <laughs> 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 Yeah, she's a maestro, a total oh, maestro. God. But um, 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 you mentioned Richard Mulligan. I got to tell you something. Yeah, Richard Mulligan. I I would sit there and I would watch him, and I just think, man, if he were around at the time, it would be Chaplin, Keaton, and Mulligan. Right. His physical yeah. comedy. Yeah. Is unbelievable. He was brilliant. brilliant yeah. Brilliant. Is amazing. Just to be on the same set with him. Uh, there were times where, you know, I would go up uh, in the middle of shooting a scene because I was just so riveted by <laughs> Richard Mulligan. I, I, oh, oh, right. I'm here, too. I forgot. You know. Yeah. Incredible. And you know oh, what? Yeah. Dinah Manoff. Dinah Manoff, man, she would sit at the, at the read-throughs mm -hmm. with the script, and we'd be reading the script, and, you know, all the writers who wrote their particular jokes would laugh harder at their jokes. And, you know, right. that's, just, that's just one of those kooky showbiz things, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, and it would be the read-through, and, and then uh, they'd say, okay, any, any questions or comments? And she would go, yeah. And she will look at that script in, in, in minutes – Tell you mm -hmm. everything that is structurally structurally wrong with it. Wow. Where every character is being compromised. Where a character is letting the steam out of a scene. It, uh, <laughs> it was breathtaking. Wow. breathtaking. Wow. Her script analysis was like that and on the money every single time. 
That's you know how crazy. writers sometimes they'll come, nah, well, we like this. We, we think you should do this. They'll make excuses for whatever. But they would listen to her stuff and they'd go, she's just right about everything. <laughs> <laughs> she's That's phenomenal. A, she's yeah. Phenomenal. And, and, uh, and uh, one last story. Yeah, yeah, so please. You mentioned Empty Nest. We got it. This is the context. Yeah, yeah. So when I started working on the show, was right around the time that Christy was Christy McNichol was going mm -hmm. through her personal travails. Okay. And so she was kind of off the show on, she, you know, some episodes that they would write her out because she needed some time on her own, whatever. And then she'd be sure. back for a few episodes and whatever. And at one point she uh, left the show. Mm -hmm. And because Richard Mulligan's character on the show was pediatrician, they would do scenes where he's at his office. And so they would have a bunch of extras that were like little kids in the yeah. waiting room to see the pediatrician. And um, I remember being at lunch one time. And then these kids are all, you know, they're all pros. They're all mm -hmm. pros. They, you know, they're showbiz kids, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, and um, we were having lunch once. And this one lovely little girl, I mean, she couldn't have been more than seven tops. Mm -hmm. Real sweet, soft-spoken little girl. Uh, and she comes up and she asks Dinah Manoff for an autograph. And Dinah said, oh, sure, sweetie. I'd love, love to give that to you. What's your name? And how do you spell that? And, and the little girl goes, uh, um, um, can I ask a question? And Dinah says, of course. What do you want to know? She says, um, where's Christy? And Dinah says, oh. well, you know, Christy has some things that she has to deal with. She's not... She's not really very healthy right now. And the doctors told her that she needs to not go to work so much. So she's probably not going to be on the show much until she's better. Mm -hmm. And the girl goes, so, so she's not going to be here on the TV show? And Dinah says, no, not, not for a while. And the little girl goes, oh, but that's good for you, though, right? <laughs> Is that everything you need to know about kids? In show oh, business, that's Amazing. so great. You know, right? Oh, fuck. <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh my god, he. I. I feel like I know. I keep telling you we're gonna go, but now I gotta say, I. I. You must love soap, the show. Oh yeah, that yeah, is. I am dying to talk to you know, um, you're the creator of that show and stuff because it's like, it's it was so ahead of its time then, but it's still. I watch that. I have them on DVD. I'm gonna finish the sentence in a second. I, I'm like I started like three sentences at the same time, um, but yeah, they I like I you know I lied, I I really do I have I watch it like every year on DVD. It still really? fucking holds up. Yeah, it is the wow. it is funny, fucking situationally like just satirizing TV soap operas, mafia culture, uh, uh, homosexuality. They handle amazing. You know, isn't it wild to see how they handled the gay character? Like what, yeah. what a fucking deal that was. It right. Was yeah. wild. Right, it was crazy, and the the what's the guy's name? Because he he was a he was a comedian. Well, he was a ventrilo the ventriloquist. The guy oh, I can't oh, think of. Oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 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 oh, come on! Now I know. Uh, Jay Johnston. That's it. Yes, yeah. he yeah. was so fucking good. Between him and so Richard good. Mulligan, you talk about you know uh, physical comedy. Whenever Richard Mulligan would react to that dummy and him. Holy, f I yeah. mean, it's just absolutely hilarious. And when, then when Bert is, uh, now we're just reminiscing like TV shit, like my family at Thanksgiving. <laughs> Remember the episode? Um, yeah, but, but, yeah but maybe we'll create a little renewed interest in Richard Mulligan who deserves it. I'm telling I you. I agree. Yeah. Indeed. 
Chaplin Keaton Mulligan. He's that good. Yes, absolutely. When yeah. he would think when he would go invisible, I mean, come on. That is just, just hilarious. So he was just great. Good. Yeah. Just great. It was beautiful watching him work, being being part of, of that. So that was the thing about that show is that you know, they brought me in to kind of be an edge on the show a little bit. Yeah. The show and, and you know, and there was talk about like when the show finally finishes its run, we can do spin-offs and we want those spin-offs to be a little more edgy and blah blah blah. Right. Uh, they always say that, and then it's the same, you know, sort of bland sitcom stuff. But the experience <laughs> being on that show and working with those those people was phenomenal. And Park overall, holy oh, crap, yeah. is she a natural? Right. She's great. They so were really, funny. really great. I mean, I've been on a lot of shows and a lot of sitcoms where people are just, you know, they're just TV pretty or, you know, they, right. they, they get marks and they know how to time a joke. But that's like the extent of, of you know, what they're about. Right. Um, yep. This show, everybody on it was just a real artist. I mean, I, like I, you could just see every one of these people doing, you know, the, the highest end, you know, acting work possible. I always felt like Richard Mulligan should have been a much bigger movie star. He's great in some of that Blake Edwards stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he was great. He was great in everything, man. He could do the drama. He could do the comedy, everything. Yeah. He just seemed like a great guy. And the dog was great, too. Love that. <laughs> I love that dog. <laughs> Best physical... Man? You know how great that dog is? That dog spent eight hours every day in the makeup chair. It's a cat. That's how good that dog is. <laughs> Fucking great, man. Um, all right, ready? Big three questions. End of the end of the show. First question is: If you can go back in time and talk to your younger self, what piece of advice would you give yourself that would help you today? Well, I actually do have an answer for that. There was one thing in my one career move I made. Mm-hmm. that I absolutely, I know came from the wrong place. When I first did The Tonight Show, my, my first Tonight Show spot was kind of crazy killer. Mm-hmm. Kind of crazy. And I don't even take credit for it because the guy who helped me work out the set named Jim McCauley, he was the segment Ooh. he was a talent yeah. at the time, he stacked the deck in my favor. He didn't tell me that the joke that he had me close with had a personal connection with Johnny. Because wow. Johnny had just been recently, I was doing a joke at the time about, remember, this was, this is how far back it goes, early 80s. Remember Gloria Vanderbilt designer jeans? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, I, I was doing a bit then about Gloria Vanderbilt hawking these jeans and, you know, she had like the worst. In fact, the joke that I couldn't believe they let me get, they let me do was that if she had one more facelift, she'd have a goatee. Uh, and I know some <laughs> people, I know some people have heard that joke, but I'm telling you. That was my joke. Uh, um, <laughs> anyhow, so he had me close with this bit, and Johnny just went nuts on the show. And then at one point, I, I'm looking at the audience, and I see they're laughing, and I, I'm having this out of body experience. And I know, and then they're, they're all looking at Johnny and laughing. And I turn I, it's out of the corner of my eye, I see Johnny. Johnny's over. He's crazy how hard he's laughing at this stuff, right? Right. Well, I found out after the show. Jim McCauley told me that Johnny's then very recent ex-wife was like best friends with Gloria Vanderbilt and that Johnny hated Gloria Vanderbilt. So he didn't tell me about this, but he stacked my deck, right? That's amazing. Okay, so that spot was so killer that they they asked me back on the show the next week. Wow. Wow. Out of fear and insecurity, I passed. Oh, my God. And I would tell myself... Fear and yeah. insecurity are going to make you make all the wrong choices. Wow. That's what I would tell myself. So there. What are your other two bullshit That's questions? great. 
That was a great one. That was and, a great answer. That and was... somebody earlier actually brought up that clip. Just pulled up Paul on the Johnny Carson Show on YouTube Classic. It's funny. Seriously? That, that, oh, wow. Yeah, way oh, earlier wow. in the cast. Oh, that's awesome. Matter of uh, fact, John, I just want to touch on some of the because we yeah, had go so for many it. great some questions, questions and comments. So uh, I just wanted to try and touch on some of them. Hank P.A. asked... Uh, Hold on. Nope. Wrong <laughs> Thanks, Hank. <laughs> when, is the, when is the Andy Indris documentary coming out? He was asking. Soon. I would be working on it right now if it weren't for these guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, this is an amazing documentary. Andy Andrus is a comedian. Um, you may not know him, but um, he's also best friends with Doug Stanhope. Nice. Are you guys familiar with Stanhope? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Love Stanhope. Well, Along with Doug Stanhope and a couple of other nut jobs, Andy went <laughs> to uh, confront on camera his childhood molester. And wow. so this documentary is leading up to that footage, what exactly happened and what drove Andy to do this and the aftermath of that. And, um, uh, so it's a really challenging piece, A, because all the footage is, I'm basically working with found footage. It was just Andy and, and a couple of guys with cameras just shooting randomly. I came into it after the fact. The only thing I was responsible for actually wow. shooting were a couple of interview segments. Uh, but the rest of it is just footage that I had nothing to do with. So it's kind of like working with found footage and putting this together. And, you know, nobody was actually going, okay, there was no game plan. There was no, like, structure. And I was just like, what's going to happen? Let's just run cameras on it. Uh, and I'm talking about for months leading up to them actually going and doing it and then going and doing it and all that stuff. It's just random. Mm. Um, and also the other aspect of it is, is that it's a comedy about child molestation. And that's right. a really tough hill to yeah. climb because I want to be respectful of, you know, the truth of, of, of how serious this is. Um, but I also thought you meant because of how many of them there were out there right now. That's... What do you mean? No, I said I thought you meant because of how many comedies about child molestation are out oh, there at, the, at this time. Right, right. <laughs> I, well, that's the thing. You know, I heard that um, um, that um, uh, Goldthwait was doing uh, Call Me Lucky, and I was like, ooh, I, I, I hope this doesn't step on it. So I, I, I called Goldthwait, and I say, can you let me see it? Do you, do you have a screener online or something? And he was like, sure. And I watched it, and I was relieved that it was so so dramatic. Because right, <laughs> I was like, right. Oh, yeah. Because... That's the thing about this is this is a way of treating this subject in a way you've never seen before. And yeah. it actually is kind of a it's kind of a, um, a paradigm for other ways to deal with this reality that somebody mm -hmm. may have suffered in their lives. That it doesn't always have to be morose and right. it doesn't have any less meaningful an event or any less horrible an event or any less, uh, you know, it's, it's not excusing anything. But the point is, at some point. You know, you got to get past it and move on. And yeah. Andy did it by being as funny as he could about it. And right. so the yeah. movie's about not only the actual event of it, but it's also about, you know, what comedy can do and how you make comedy out of tragedy and, and what the effect of that is. And yeah. so it's working on a lot of levels. And I'm, I'm sure there are people who've been busting my balls because I've been working on this thing for a million years. <laughs> but the reason is that it's, you know, again, I'm dealing with nonlinear footage and I'm dealing with subject matter that I the balance just has to be right. I don't want yep. anybody to think that we're making light of anything that happened to anybody 
to Andy or anybody for whom this happens to in life, you know? Right. Yeah. So it's a very, very tricky thing. And, and it's also, there are times where I've had to take time away from it because as funny as it is and as funny as Aunt Andy is talking about it, it's just hard to go through the reality of it, you know, right. dealing with this, this, the story about what happened and how it happened and all the things around it. And then all the stuff you read around it, because, you know, I, I've gone down the road of, you know, learning about this and about people's response to this happening and how pervasive this is. And, and then I had some some people very close to me in life that, you know, their lives have been really fucked up by things that happened to them like this. And, and it's, it's started to sort of get to me too, you know? Yeah. 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 It's a tough thing to do. The other thing too, is you're right. I don't think people realize, especially like within the last 10 years, the generation coming up that comedy is a way of dealing with, you know, trauma, uh, really tra traumatic issues and shit like that. There's so many people who think you can't joke about a thing. And it's like, yeah, you know, but you have your way of dealing with traumatic issues, whether it's therapy, whether it's reading quotes online or read or comfort food or whatever it is. Our way of doing shit like that is to mock it till it no longer affects us in a way that's harmful. That you're getting to some of the themes of, uh, of Satirista's right there is that is that, you know, when you, what Andy did was he took control of what it was doing to him. He took control right. of the fact that it happened. And, yeah. you know, the fact that it happened, the fact that most child abuse happens is a complete and total loss of control. You know, yeah. uh, um, um, you, you're completely powerless. You, you're, you have no control over it. And then it continues throughout your entire life, you know, right. having control over you. But by making his, you know, by, by making the choice to say, what's the funniest jokes I can make about this gave right. him control over the fact that it happened to him. And that's a bit of a paradigm shift for, I think most people. And that's what I was saying when I watched call me lucky, it was like, once again, it was like, um, and I, you know, Barry Crimmins, I mean, he actually went to, you know, Congress and, you know, to, to de debate the issues, you know, paying attention yeah. to, to, you know, for people who suffered from child sex abuse and stuff. And, you know, he took it very seriously and all. And, 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 there was nothing funny about, you know, how Barry dealt with it, but there is stuff that's funny about how Andy dealt with it. And I, I, it was just like, you know, even watching call me lucky, it was like, you do not see any discussion of this reality that is pervasive in our society. It's pervasive mm -hmm. all over the world one way or another. You never see it handled in any other way, but morose. Right. And again, I'm not saying that people who are morose about it are wrong. I'm just saying that there is no other paradigm. Yeah. And Andy, I think his story is is pretty fucking interesting. And I think it might make a difference to a lot of people who are like, I don't even know how to deal with this. Well, right. there's a whole world of way to deal with it that nobody's ever really let you see, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. So that's my answer to that question. I'm yeah, yeah. Sorry. yeah. Long, but it's not because, <laughs> no no it's because, it's because i care so much yeah no but that's what's um, great about it do you want me to move on to the other one or you got any more you know what, let me grab one, one more because yeah uh, grab one more so mine uh matt Napo actually asked why is british tv more stand-up friendly why do you feel you know, like i is? don't know why i don't know why but it is i mean look at Primetime broadcast television, nothing. There's no stand-up. And there hasn't been almost forever. You know, the only time you started to see stand-up outside of the late-night talk shows was when cable came along. And you were seeing Evening the Improv and Showtime on the road, you know, in primetime. Uh, yeah. um, but the broadcast networks were never interested in it. 
And even if you look at, uh, you know, I'm not talking about like Netflix or whatever, where, where it's just, you know, pick whatever's on their shelf, you know, but yeah. I'm talking about, you know, uh, even Comedy Central. There's no stand-up. Right, it's For yeah. some reason, they don't put stand-up on TV that often. And, right. uh, you know, on one hand, I guess they feel, they feel that, well, that's, you know, that's a Netflix special. That's their thing, you know, right. or HBO or Showtime. It's their thing, you know. Um, yeah. But they just don't. Uh, why is the Brit uh, Brit TV landscape more amenable? I don't know, but all over British television in prime time, you have different formats. You have panel shows. You have things like eight out of ten cats. You have things yeah. like uh, um, um, mm -hmm. I can't think off the top of my head, but there's a bunch of uh, uh, um, uh, shows where you know panels of comics talking about news events, or panels of comics doing a thing, or you know it's, it, it, they have the comics. They're not necessarily doing stand up. Right. But they're presented, you know, in their glory as comedians. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, we don't have that in America. Yeah. And I don't know why. It's a really frustrating thing. I just don't get it. I don't get it. It's huge. People love it. People yeah. love it. They do. I don't know why. I don't get it. I don't yeah, get it. I have relatives across the pond, and they seem to know and and like love their stand-ups in a way that that americans do not really yeah, care for and there are stand-ups who become household names over there without people ever seeing their stand-up because they're on tv all the time on all these panel shows yeah it's crazy yeah. yeah i don't get it i don't i don't get that either yeah i mean i think the last time i remember when i was a kid uh hbo young comedy special that was like a, an event like a prime time you know what i mean like yeah, yeah. it would come on a thing but now if stand up comedy central airs stand-up it's at fucking two o'clock in the morning if if, if, yeah, if, exactly. Yeah. No, it's so. I just don't get it. I just no. don't get it, and I can't think of a more cost-effective production right. than a stand-up show. Yep. Yeah. I, don't, I don't get it. And the bummer thing is, too, is like I swear to God, and I'm not. And this is gonna make me sound like a curmudgeonly old dude, but like I, I could walk out of a room and you could put any stand-up on any of the late-night shows, and I could not fucking tell them apart because I feel like to get on those shows, you have to have the same cadence, you have to have the same time shit. And there's That's nobody the, like you when need you do seven minutes. When you do seven minutes on a talk show, all you're doing is a commercial for people to come and see you live. Right. That's all it is. You can't yeah. So it's not it. enough. You can't you person. I mean, there's very few people who like right out of the gate, you get who they are and what they're about, you know? Right. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a bummer. So that's not enough for people to look at it and go, I want to see this on prime time. It's just like, Oh, it's just some stand up on late night TV and maybe we'll go see them live. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't get it. You know, I, for for a long time, Dan Pasternak, Pasternak and I would talk about this, and I had this theory that for a long time, the idea of doing stand up on on broadcast television was like low rent because that's how all the cable channels that was like their first original programming was right. stand up because it was the cheapest, easiest thing for them to do, and boom, they had they had original programming. Yeah. You know, they didn't have to hire writers. The production is really simple. Mm -hmm. didn't have to you know spend. so it seemed like stand-up kind of became the province of what i guess you know this is my theory that the broadcasts were like oh that's low rent that's right. you know that that's that's for the cable stations to to do not us you right know? yeah I, yeah i think it's just a theory no that makes sense yeah um uh, so the second question in the third in the three questions at the end second question is what had to end in your life in order for you to wind up where you are today, what had to end, good or bad, in order for you to wind up where you are today? Say that one more time. What had to end in your life, good or bad, in order for you to wind up where you are today? What had to end in my life? Yeah. 
Oh, okay. I'll tell you right off the bat. My father had to die. Am I, I'm a, am I an upbeat guy or what? <laughs> you wow. want escapism? I'm your guy. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. Well, why my, dad was a pretty, my dad was a pretty severe guy. He had a great sense of humor, but mm -hmm. it wasn't a thing we shared. He was very, you know, Italian disciplinarian. He was a, right. a, 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 a an industrial chemist wow. uh, by by occupation. He was a career military in the National Guard. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a lieutenant colonel when he died. He had been wow. in almost his whole adult life, uh, and um, he was a very severe, hard nosed guy. And you know, his idea of discipline was actionable now. Really, mm -hmm. you go to jail. <laughs> um, not even joking, you know, right. um, um, and he, there's no way in hell if he were alive that I would have been able to go into comedy. Wow. And, yeah. um, I actually spoke to a therapist friend of mine, a psychiatrist friend of mine who, uh, said something real interesting that, you know, about whatever my issues were at the time, um, that that's really, you know something that probably is resonating in me that, you know, in order for me to do what I'm doing, my father had to die. Wow. Know, like, wow. She goes, she said to me, she goes, you think that could fuck you up? <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take for you to come to kind of terms with that, that that was an okay thing for you to acknowledge in yourself? I don't think that I have. I think I just have to live with it. Right. All right. Yeah. yeah good answer, man. That's the thing um, is that, you know, it's, it's, a little, it's that weird sort of Mobius strip because if he were alive, would he have been proud of what I've accomplished or, you know, like, right. Like my mother, uh, you know, all of a sudden, everything, she was not like, it wasn't like, Oh, you can't do that. Or, you know, no, you got to get a steady job. You know, she wasn't like that. Right. Um, but when I, when it was clear that, you know, when I did the tonight show and she could tell all her friends that I was on the tonight show and they were all going, you're kidding. Oh my God. Right. You must be so proud. You know, everything became okay for her, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know if that would have happened with my dad or, you know, sure. Like, I don't remember. He wasn't, wasn't like we sat around and like, like there were people I talked to. They said, oh yeah. My father and I, we would sit and listen to Bill Cosby records and laugh. And that wasn't, that, that, that wasn't me and my dad. So I don't right. know, you know, but, yeah. uh, it was a long time ago. Yeah. Well, that's crazy, man. Um, any uh, other uplifting I, questions you got? Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> well, the next one's. I'm such a downer. I no, no, you're not. No, it's the, these are great, man. Third answer. question is when uh, do you remember when your first pet passed away? You hear all that? <laughs> yeah, that's the next one. Uh, <laughs> where are like they buried? Bank, this sounds like a bank security question. <laughs> <laughs> He's got us, John. He's got yeah, us. Know. He knows it. I already got his last four digits of his phone number. <laughs> oh, fuck. This isn't even a show. Um, <laughs> so the last question is, uh, it ties into the show. So this is going to be kind of fun is if this is a genuine dystopia, right. And it's everybody's last day on earth. It's not. I know. I know. <laughs> the, the trick is that it's our last day. We know it's our last day. What would be your epic death? How would you want to go out? Laughing, baby. Laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Laughing. I'm going to put George Carlin's, uh, uh, um, Jamming in New York on. I'm going to watch nice. him talk about how humanity is destroying itself, and I'm going to laugh as humanity destroys itself. Love it. Love I like it. A, I, I, I like a good meta. Um, yeah, that's great. I'm, so we have what we do is we have an artist draw the cover of the podcast episode based on that answer, 
And I'm already <laughs> thinking, I'm already thinking of you in a reclining chair with a joint and a <laughs> TV watching Carlin. And behind that is the destruction of the world. Oh, I'm going to frame that, put it on my wall. I will, pr I will send it to you already framed. Please do. Done. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so fucking much for coming Thank on, you, man. man. I'm a, I'm a, I, I hope I wasn't too boring. No, no, God, no, not at all. We had nothing but great comments the whole way through, too. Not necessarily questions, but like even the last comment was uh, from the more. Wow, man, this guy still has his A game laughing my ass off. Vicky what? said earlier, this is like a comedy masterclass. Thank oh, you for having man. me. Oh, you guys are sweet. I wish I could read awesome. those comments. Yeah. <laughs> I'll print those out for you, too. Uh, but you're not showing me the other ones. You're not showing me the ones you don't want me to see. Oh, no, yeah. Some of them. The rest are just... Are just uh, <laughs> you're not showing me the ones that say, this guy killed my favorite TV show. <laughs> the, I the love Dreyfus. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the rest are just emoji eggplants and jerk-off motion. So that's... Dude, that's... I think a, those are normal. That's... I aspire to that. <laughs> that's... Awesome, let me man. tell you something. Let me tell you what a bunch of crap the fucking Oscars is. Okay? <laughs> I'm seriously, why are you giving any of these people awards for shit? The, the porno stars, man, I don't care how good these fucking actors or actresses are. None of them ever make you come. And those people don't get awards. They don't get recognition. There's no TV special for them. Oh, that's great. That's so true. He's right. I agree. True. Yeah, fuck it. All right, you guys, it's been a blast. Thank you. I've really had a great time. Um, um, now I feel like I'm actually, uh, I'm actually upbeat. What have you done to me? Yes, that, is, that is a sign of the apocalypse when I'm yeah. up. Uh, <laughs> it's been fun. Give Greg Troops my love and uh, let's talk again sometime. Absolutely, Absolutely man. Thanks, Thank man. you so much. Have a great Peace. way. Thank you guys. Bye-bye. Tonight.